Welcome back. So this is the second round table, round the square table, of uh, discussion um, today. And uh, we're going to talk about the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, and analyzing memory politics of Russia and uh, Ukraine and maybe even uh, more broadly in Europe. And to help me and you guys to understand this better, I have a great two-man panel. Uh, Stefan Ingvarsson, analyst at the S uh, Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies. This is uh, part of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, that thing. And uh, Julia Jurschuk, uh, that is research researcher and <coughs> senior lecturer at Södertörn University. Welcome. Applause, please. <laughs> yes. Um, and now I'm going to sit down. <coughs> The title of this discussion is Revisionist Remembering and War in Europe, Finding Paths Towards Peace, with a question mark. So it's a question. Um, and as in the uh, previous discussion, uh, hopefully we will have time for some questions from the audience at the end. But first, uh, uh, they, my, my panel here is going to start with uh, a, a starting uh, statement uh, each. And Julia will go first. Is it on? It is on. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I didn't realize that I will be the first. That thank was you. Stefan, do you want to? Uh, no, I, no, I, 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 I can yeah. be. It's, it's okay. It was actually, uh, it was actually <laughs> Stefan that told me to, to get you first in line. Ah, good. So you can um, yeah. Actually, no, it's good that I am the first because uh, uh, I can be like yeah, very direct and uh, uh, maybe build in dialogue um, between the panel which we had before. Yes, that sounds and, lovely. Um, uh, first of all, it is very difficult to, to speak about uh, peace when uh, it is the war in my country right and uh, um, but uh, I try to think like um, John Lennon imagine so I imagine right. and uh, also um, like um, well, I was uh, wondering about this question like revisioning and the revisionist history and I started to thinking about what we are revisioning as historians and I am trained as historian mm -hmm. and uh, actually as a historian I am more accustomed to speak about wars than about the peace so mm -hmm. in this way it's uh, maybe easier that um, uh, at, at least I'm trained to do it and um, um, speaking about this revisioning I, I would start uh, by saying that um, um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, this kind of revision in the history started in Ukraine. And, um, and this was really like uh, you revising everything. You just uh, look at what you have in the history, what you have in the history textbooks, and you see what is missing there and what is wrong there. And for instance, we were speaking about this um, um, parallel histories or parallel memories when there is no dialogue between like real life, real memory and uh, uh, politics of memory. Because when I was a child, I remember my uh, grandmother was always saying like, when, uh, when um, Russians came, then um, when uh, Germans came, then again, when uh, Russians came, I, I never could uh, place it into this bigger picture. I couldn't understand what she was speaking about. Mm. And only when I was 
uh, trained as a historian, and of course when I was already a grown up, I understood what she was meaning. Because in uh, my education at school, I never heard about the uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov uh, pact. Mm. I, I never knew that it was actually uh, first really the Soviet Union that attacked their, uh, uh, their territory where, where we lived. So we, we, we never knew it. And, um, because uh, my family comes from this region in uh, eastern uh, Poland. Uh, so it was like uh, really uh, something what came from the family and this questioning like how can it be that uh, uh, you have something at school, you have something at textbooks and you have some different story at home. And uh, what was uh, happening during the 90s that a kind of um, memory work started and uh, people started thinking like, what is missing there? Like uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, pact, it was missing. So it, it became a part of the curriculum. And then again, uh, it was also like, um, when we speak about memory politics, it's not about the state, but very often, and I was studying memory politics in Ukraine, and very often it was exactly as it was said in the previous panel, it was different groups. And these groups had their own agenda. For instance, diaspora played a very uh, important role there. And for instance, um, all these uh, people who were uh, political prisoners during the Soviet Union, they had their own organizations and they had their own agenda. And they uh, really influenced the way um, memory politics was done, especially in uh, uh, locally, so that uh, I, what I could see when I was doing my research for my dissertation many years ago, that this kind of grassroots um, movement was really in place. So what we could see um, in the 90s that uh, it, actually the memory, uh, the memory field became very much uh, pluralized, and it was different agents, different groups, different memory actors who influenced the way. Uh, different parts of history became um, remembered. And, uh, we, and it also influenced which kind of um, monuments we've got um, uh, in different cities. And um, so it was very, mi uh, very much pluralistic, but some, uh, some topics became really central for this kind of formation of national narrative, national history, national memory. And uh, one of them was uh, the memory of uh, the famine of 1932-33, which is known in Ukraine as Holodomor. And uh, during these um, years, um, it was like um, the, the uh, lowest estimate is uh, 4 million people uh, died of hunger. And, um, and of course, it was a, a, a very like, big disaster for, for Ukraine, but no one was allowed to speak about this disaster during the Soviet times. So in the 90s, uh, uh, when it became possible to speak about. And again, it was also something what I remembered from my family. And then suddenly it became uh, known as national history. And uh, we had then the word for it. And uh, because my, my mother uh, or my grandmother, she, uh, she was using um, uh, the uh, term or, or the word hunger, but then we had uh, the whole, um, the formation of the whole concept of Holodomor. And it, of course, it was formed then as um, 
this cluster of memory. And um, again, what was uh, also uh, like this big um, national date or nas new national dates, it was uh, um, the uh, national independence uh, or the day of um, Ukrainian flag, the day of Ukrainian constitution. So it was a lot of different memories because in the Soviet Union, the, the main topic was this, the victory in the Second World War and it was known as the Great Patriotic War. And again, it wasn't even this kind of narrative of the Great Patriotic War, which was questioned because suddenly uh, <laughs> everyone started speaking like, uh, which, uh, which like patriotic, which, which kind of motherlands are we talking about? And uh, also what is also very um, uh, interesting in this regard that um, um, in this kind of connection to uh, great victory that uh, um, of course, uh, like all, uh, every family in Ukraine, they lost someone in the uh, Second World War. Uh, but what was uh, silenced was that uh, for many families, um, the uh, establishment of the post-war order didn't really mean peace. For many, it was the continuation of war or the continuation of the occupation. And it was never, ever uh, spoken about. Uh, and uh, actually when uh, in the 90s the Baltic Republic started this uh, narrative of uh, re-establishment of, um, of independence, uh, it was never happening in Ukraine. So it was uh, like uh, there, there was no, uh, there were only marginal groups that uh, spoke about uh, uh, re-establishment. So it was also something what was very different, and um, uh, yeah, this that is about this revisioning of history during 90s. And in 2004, we had the Orange Revolution, and then the uh, memory of the Orange Revolution itself it became. Uh, again, a new memory uh, node, and uh, it was also it became one of the central memory topics of the independent Ukraine. And then we had uh, the Euromaidan revolution in 2014, and this memory of the Euromaidan revolution it really became the central memory of uh, of uh, the independent Ukraine. And then. Um, the war which started in 2014, just directly after Euromaidan revolution and all the soldiers killed during this uh, war and then this big invasion in um, February 2022, it all just uh, kind of adds to all these topics which become more and more central to memory field. So now there is uh, like uh, we, we can say that we moved from this uh, uh, great triumphal narrative, which was uh, a part of the Soviet heritage, <coughs> uh, and this triumphal uh, memory is about the Soviet victory in the Second World War, and we moved to quite a completely different field with uh, a lot of different memories. And now this memory, I'm sure it will be the, the center of this national memory. It will be the memory of the war we have now. Right. Well, <coughs> I just have to ask you uh, one thing. You talked about um, that this famine was given a word and a name. How much does that matter that you actually can give it a name? Actually, 
Yeah, actually, this name uh, existed, yep. but uh, it was uh, it existed at uh, some dissidents um, uh, groups or in diaspora. There was this word, but because it's really like uh, when you have a word for something, it already uh, kind of gives you possibility to build up something, or like uh, you yep. know, like to to build up uh, like m m maybe monuments to to this event or something yep. which is. Uh, bigger than uh, just a communicative memory of one family. Because in families, and I'm coming from Western Ukraine, we, we, we only had some people who were fleeing, who, who, who were lucky to flee their hunger. Mm. Because it was not allowed, it was really policing, uh, policed, and no one was allowed to leave the territory of Eastern Ukraine then. But uh, some people did, and what, uh, what my family then uh, told what was happening, it was like, Wow, it, it's like, uh, but then of course when I was uh, was a student, I had uh, a lot of uh, friends from all over Ukraine, and uh, I got to know more and more all these uh, family stories. And now, what is interesting that now uh, so much research is done on uh, the famine that you just, I, I just as a historian, I just uh, cannot start stop um, wondering how could it be possible because uh, the the last thing I read about it was like that uh, the Soviets uh, were even confiscating their matches so that people couldn't even make a food the food even if they had no uh, nothing to make the food off they couldn't even uh, make fire to 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 get food so it's it's like why should you do it because then it's really it it doesn't really uh, speak to this kind of uh, explanations that no it was just a bad weather Hmm. Oh, we thank you. We will get back to that. Um, Stefan, please. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to say a few words about uh, the position that I come from because um, I never imagined being an expert on Russia, and I am since two days actually, <laughs> um, uh, formally, an analyst of Russia and Ukraine and uh, Eastern Europe. And but my background is in publishing and in literature, and I. Um, I studied Polish literature, and on my mother's side, I have roots in Lithuania. And uh, recently, I've been on a leave of absence for a month because I'm writing a book based on a personal research on a specific camp system of the Gulag in Komi, in northern European Russia. So I'm asking myself a lot of questions during the writing about the intentional killing, because these are the main questions, and there's a unfortunate juxtaposition, but also logical juxtaposition of the terror and uh, the great repression in the Soviet Union uh, versus the crimes of um, Nazi Germany. Wider crimes, not only the Holocaust, not only anti-Semitism, but also political persecution, persecution of gay men, and so on. Uh, and, and of... Uh, and the kind of refurbishing of ethnical groups uh, in the path of the advances of the German army. The intentional killing is an unresolved question until today. There's a lot of historical work to do about the actual orders. We can only see the kind of logic of killing. So, for example, where I'm studying right now in, in a trans one of the largest transition camps in um, the whole Gulag system. 
It's called Kotlas. It's a town um, in Arkhangelske Oblast in northern Russia. When the so-called dekulakization started, uh, when some of the farmers who had maybe hired help or more land were deemed enemies of the people and were forcibly taken away and deported because they were imagined as standing in the way of the Soviet plan. Uh, they were put on trains, in cattle cars, uh, about 10% died during the transport, usually the older and the children. Uh, and then they came to transit camps where people were unprepared for this and there were local revolutionaries who wanted to fulfill their revolutionary duty and they tried to interpret what Moscow wanted. Why are they sending five trains with 40 cars with thousands of people when they know we have no barracks, we have no place to house them? And so they sit there and they think, should they die? Should we build barracks? What should we do? There's no instruction. The only decision is to remove them. Remove them from society. They are unwanted groups of people that should be removed, put in cattle, car, cattle cars and removed. As we know, the Germans had a similar pro problem because they couldn't kill these people fast enough, so they started creating uh, extermination camps. The Soviet Union never created extermination camps. There was no final solution, there was no decision. It was left to the local uh, the le local executors of the camp system to envision what was the revolutionary intent with this. Should we let them live? Should we let them starve slowly? Should they, should we keep them alive? All of these questions were unsolved. So I'm just telling this as a bit of a start because I also think that it's very important when we talk about the Soviet Union and the post-Soviet space that there is a general amnesia and it's linked to the great terror of the Stalin years. There was such a fear of speaking that in the post-Soviet space we just have a big silence. And then when memory is introduced through textbooks, through commemorations, memorials, the narrative in media, all kinds of collective uh, remembrance. This memory is just attached to fragments, bits and pieces of memory on a private level, because you maybe have a photograph of your grandfather, you know that he fought in World War II, but you don't know what he did. Maybe he was part of occupying Estonia, Maybe he committed war crimes. The Soviet army committed a lot of war crimes. So did other allied armies during World War II. The British also committed a lot of war crimes. But in Britain, there is a discussion about this. In the Soviet Union, there never was. So you have no idea who this grandfather is. And then suddenly, during the 9th of May celebrations, there's a commemoration called uh, the Besmirtny uh, Polk, the, the um, immortal battalion, where you carry your grandparents that fought in the war as portraits. And then there is a collective narrative that this was the great victory, the Soviet Union uh, crushed fascism, defended the fatherland, and you're carrying these pictures as if it connects to a personal memory, but actually 
you don't know anything about these people as a rule because nothing was ever told, nothing was ever written, because the fear was too big. And then you kind of inject yourself into the narrative of Putin's Russia, of how you commemorate history, without actually being able to fact check the narrative, or even relate the narrative to something that is your own, that is local, personal, um, you're kind of taken hostage because of this general amnesia and this general silence that exists. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, full, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine this year, it's like opening a Pandora's box. And we can see it now, we'll talk more about this. But it's like, suddenly, this narrative, this collective narrative that you were forced to, forced to kind of align yourself with kind of removes its mask and you see that it's actually an authoritarian, neo-totalitarian vertical of force, violence against the individual, against other nations. It's not the defender of peace, it's not the defender of the fatherland, it's been using you to militarize you and to introduce a militaristic rhetoric to engage in a new war of atrocities. And suddenly this crushes everything. And what we're seeing right now on the Russian side, in the fringes, not in the main, say, discourse, where a lot of people are clinging to you know, the things that are known because they're feeling that the ground is shaking. The ground is shaking underneath everything that is Russia. Even the name Russia is not clear anymore. There's a total kind of tectonic shift going on and people are clinging to what they know. And on the fringes, you have the debate starting right now with all the colonized nations who still live within the Russian Federation, the Kalmyks, the Sakha, the Buryats, the Yakuts, the Cherkessians, the Chuvashians, the Udmurt, the Komi, uh, the Mari, the Sami, all of them are rediscovering that they have a different history. That maybe in World War II they were not defending the fatherland. That maybe they have been fighting colonial wars for the Soviet Union and for Russia, just as they are now sent to the colonial war that Russia is fighting in Ukraine. Where a disproportionate number of Chechens and Buryats have been fighting. So this is an introduction. Yes, thank you so much. Um, okay, so uh, my first question then, what, what is the greatest difference between the Russian and the Ukrainian understanding of history here in the light of the war? Uh, Stefan, do you Please continue. Oh, uh, <laughs> Julia, you can start uh, if you want yeah, to. Yeah, I, I went into a pathos, but, uh. It's, uh, but <laughs> it's important to remember that when, uh, when Russia started the, the war in Ukraine in 1914, that now escalated into a full-scale war this year, uh, it wasn't the so, way... Sorry, tw 2014. You 20, said, yeah, tw yeah, 19, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> 2014. Yes. Sorry. Uh, it wasn't the whims of an individual or a circle advising him. It was a relapse 
because Russia has been weak and not been able to kind of pursue its imperial doctrine that it has had for centuries. It was a strengthened Russia that kind of relapsed into a politics that it has been conducting uh, towards Ukraine for centuries. And there is nothing new about this. There's nothing revisionist, actually, about this. It's, it's not revisioning anything. It's going back to uh, what Russia does when, when it can with this doctrine that has been in place, regardless of the, if it was the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union or the contemporary Russia. I always say that, I mean, Yuri Dmitriev is an activist in the Memorial uh, Movement. Memorial Movement is a, a civil society organization that tries to uh, collect the memory about the Soviet uh, repression uh, and the crimes against um, different types of groups that the Soviet state committed. And he works in Karelia. And maybe it's very, I mean, it's very far from Ukraine. Karelia is you know, on the border with Finland. And in Karelia, he was maintaining a small forest called Sandermoch, where about 6,000 victims of the state security service in the Soviet Union are buried. Among them, about 200 are Ukraine, prominent Ukrainians, but not just any Ukrainians. It's the absolutely in the 30s, most known writers, playwrights, academics, researchers. It's the absolute cultural elite of Ukraine. And they were taken from Ukraine in the 30s to a very distant forest up in the north in Karelia and shot in mass graves. And the reason why Yuri Dmitriev, now accused of horrendous crimes of uh, sexual assault against his adoptive daughter, invented accusations meant to discredit him, he's now in prison with a new long prison sentence. And the reason why he's in prison is not because Putin's Russia is afraid of a person who's you know, trying to tell the truth about what the state security did in the 30s. It's because in 2015, a year after the war started, he was told by the local authorities not to invite the Ukrainians to the commemoration in Sandermoch. And he said, it's impossible. Ukraine is buried here. They must be able to come. And so he allowed for Ukrainians coming from Kiev to be there. A year later, the accusations of pedophilia were made against him, and he's now imprisoned. And I think Sandermoch is really where we should look for like, if we want to see the continuation of the Russian and Soviet policies towards Ukraine, they're in Sandermoch. And Sandermoch should not be understood as the bodies of 200 talented people, but as the void that was created by their killing. Everything they, they didn't write, they didn't understand, they didn't explain, tell, view, film, paint, everything, the kind of emptiness that Sandermoch leaves in Ukrainian culture. 
Yeah, uh, thank you, Stefan, that you uh, took up uh, Sandra Moore, but, uh, because if we come to this question of difference, yeah. so we see that uh, here Sandra Moore uh, in Russia became such a problem, but in Ukraine it was again one of these very uh, important memory nodes which uh, uh, people started to speak about, to commemorate, to really build the memory of it, uh, beginning from 90s. So it's like one of the topics like Holodomor, we have uh, Sandromov also. So this is, and we also have even the name for all these people lost, this void, uh, it's called Rostrilana Vidrodzhenia, uh, the massacred um, renaissance, because uh, it is uh, the renaissance which never happened. And many of these people, they really believed in the possibility of Soviet Ukraine, for instance, but they were killed f f just exactly for this Soviet, but still Ukraine. So and they were creating their uh, works in Ukrainian, and this was very big problem. And uh, and actually, this is where the difference uh, is. So and uh, if we just develop this kind of um, discussion, what is the difference? The difference is open discussion versus. Uh, closed or sanctioned discussion or uh, absence of discussion. So uh, maybe in Ukraine we had too many memories, but because it was like boiling with memories and each group wanted to see their own memory, memorial, monument, whatever, museum. And, uh, and actually it worked like this. And in Ukraine from 90s to 2019, we had three different Orthodox churches is working so it also <laughs> shows this kind of plurality of um, everything what is going on in Ukraine so I would say this plurality or on this kind of um, polyphony uh, against uh, monologue okay but I also have to ask then uh, to you Yulia um, what does this view on the past uh, what role does it have in the conflict today um, actually just leave it on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> actually, I, I will. Uh, actually, I would say that um, uh, this war is not about uh, history. It's not about the past per se. Uh, so Russia is using the past, uh, using yeah. these uh, narratives to kind of uh, um, dis disguise the imperialistic uh, war. But uh, in some sense, it is about the past because I I'm sure that we wouldn't have war now if there work of memory would uh, have been done. If, if we had this uh, work done in 90s, it wouldn't be war now. So if, if there was uh, some kind of recognition that uh, all these atrocities happened because of the uh, Stalinist regime, because of the Soviet regime, uh, and if, uh, if all, all the societies came to this, maybe we wouldn't have uh, uh, the war. But the problem is that uh, some societies were trying to, to um, really get order in all this mess, uh, and Russia just continued uh, this um, 
and uh, for me, I, I I would say that uh, uh, it's even um, like um, if there was some kind of uh, memory work in nineties, it, uh, it it was completely crashed in Russia. It's it's like like uh, really as Stefan said, it's like coming back to this very imperialistic ideas without even this kind of Soviet uh, disguise of uh, let's speak about uh, different um, friendship of nations or whatever. This is really like imperialistic view of the world. Everyone has to be like we want or all the differences has to be eliminated. That's, that's it. Okay, so how does uh, Russia look at its own colonial history then, Stefan? It doesn't. Um, is <laughs> it, doesn't. it doesn't. Okay. It's <coughs> the thing is, neither do we. Uh, neither do we. Uh, I think a lot of uh, Westerners are uh, still uncertain and slightly surprised when you uh, apply a post-colonial understanding and a post-colonial view on the history of Russia and the Soviet Union. And uh, I feel that I am also an analyst of Russia coming a bit from the side and maybe also from the margin having partly Lithuanian, partly roots in Lithuania, uh, uh, where my direct ancestors on my mother's side were deported to quote-unquote Siberia. It wasn't really Siberia, it was Kazakhstan or the Urals or northern Russia. But I have three waves of deportations in the 1830s, 1860s and 1940s. Um, so you can view Russia also from a small Lithuanian town where people are being constantly deported into the vastness of this empire. Uh, in different uh, waves, and uh, uh, and what what it does, and I'm not saying Lithuania is, I mean Lithuania in its smallness has a lot of its own problems with memory and the Holocaust and the relation between Poles and Lithuanians and uh, Germans and Lithuanians and so on. All of these things are slowly resolving. Lithuania is a small. Uh, country that feels threatened. The good thing with Ukraine is that it's fairly a fairly large society, so it can it can maybe deal when this war is over also with some of its own complicated uh, uh, elements of the past. And when we're talking about Russian colonialism, everything is not black and white. If you talk to say Kazakhs and and Saha people in, in what Russia called Yakutia, uh, they will say, well, a lot of the colonizers were Ukrainians because, of course, Ukraine played in the big colonial project of the Russian Empire a similar role to what Scots did in the English imperial project. Uh, and all of these things will one day, when this war is over, be able to be discussed. I also wonder, when I traveled through Russia and I come to Primorsky Krai, that is the area around Vladivostok, on bordering Korea, uh, and I asked them, who are you? A lot of people say, I'm Ukrainian. And I would like to go back there now and ask them, what does this mean in the shadow of the war that you're telling me that you're Ukrainian? What does this mean? Because I'm curious. Because a lot of the population in Siberia, quite a lot, and the estimates are, they vary. But at least, I mean, at least one third of the population in, in Siberia is Ukrainian, by origin. Uh, what does this mean? 
I mean, all of these questions are just hanging there. It's a large, enormous space for discussion, scientific research, writing, memory work. Uh, yes, indeed, and this is a very interesting topic because uh, I, uh, we already discussed it with some of my colleagues, this kind of uh, all colonial relations when Ukrainians themselves became colonial. Uh, so, uh, and uh, sometimes we, we had these discussions um, with uh, historians or um, the scholars of literature, but uh, of course it should be done more. But uh, what you said about this... Um, kind of um, distrust to Russia being colonial, but uh, actually there was this uh, distrust of applying um, post-colonial theory in the uh, study in Ukraine, for instance, even in Ukraine, because uh, I was using post-colonial theory when I was writing my dissertation, it was 15 years ago, and uh, still uh, people were like, Oh, really? Because for many people in the region, it's like uh, colonies are only these colonies of uh, uh, Great Britain, uh, like uh, the colonies of Spain or France, but Russia. So, and in the colonial studies, there is this kind of double, like this duality of Russia that it's it's seen like on even by the empires, like the first world empires, like it's not really the the real empire. And this is, of course, adds to this kind of. Um, Maybe even humiliation. I don't know, hmm. but the, but uh, actually, what is uh, happening now? I, there is more and more focus just on this uh, decolonial decoloniality in the region. Stefan, yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the other colonized uh, nations and languages of Russia are also not ready to have this discourse because the awakening is happening right now. I was at a conference last week in Berlin with over uh, 200 representatives of civil society from inside Russia and outside Russia, including ethnic minorities, listening to the heated discussions where everyone disagrees <laughs> about a lot of things and where a lot of things, even the whole idea of there being a Russia, is questioned uh, by by all these people. and. Uh, and the, the, the really important questions asked by, say, Chechnyans about, I mean, you have this awakening now uh, when uh, you are killing other white people, but when you are killing us, uh, neither the world nor the Russian opposition or liberal intelligentsia was, I mean, with exceptions. We know Anna Politkovskaya and other important activists and journalists describing the war atrocities in the two Chechen wars. But the truth is that the, this mask that many people feel that Russia has taken off now with this war in Ukraine was already taken off in the 90s uh, in the Chechen wars. Julia, have, have the Ukrainian view on history changed over time, say the last decade? Uh, the last decade, um, I would say that the process which started in the 90s, this kind of, uh, it, it was called, uh, uh, sometimes we say de-Sovietization, but this term uh, came much later, it was it came in 2000, but the, uh, the people were speaking about filling in the blank spots of history. So this, uh, this, uh, um, this process which started in the 90s, it just continued, and uh, what, uh, what uh, was really, 
um, are striking for me that uh, uh, after uh, after the war uh, started, it was 2014. A lot of historians. Uh, they really became some became soldiers, and uh, uh, and those who didn't become soldiers even they became uh, really uh, they they understood that they should do something what they can, and for them uh, what they can it's like uh, telling history and very good historians who would never ever like because there is such an image that uh, if you are good scholar you are not coming to this popular history books or whatever, but they really started writing a lot of popular history books and they understood that there is uh uh, there is lack of understanding. Oh, there is this void. Even if historians were working on this, filling filling in this this blank spots, and even if they did it, and uh, it was on, not only in Ukraine but uh, in um, Ukrainian studies like worldwide. Uh, but um, it, this knowledge, the, it never like came to to like broader public. And what was going on after 2014? A lot of books were published, like really for popular. <laughs> I use and the, the, it was uh, it was interesting for me to see and uh, very of many of these books were really uh, uh, good quality books and um, and at this uh, and uh, it's also interesting because uh, before that we had all these kinds of very mythological national writings which were very popular uh, in the society because they were like really mythologizing history at all so it was like a uh, um, backlash a bit so we had um, like really like legends going on and these historians they tried really to be balanced to to show the complexity of history but in very accessible way so and it really played against all these myths going on so yeah. And did it have an impact? Did they succeed? In terms I think of that, uh, yeah, I think that they succeeded because I was following one group for years, and uh, they were um, they were traveling throughout Ukraine, presenting the books, uh, having lectures, and whatever. And uh, and now it's already like nine years, uh, and. Um, and you see this uh, like young people, and I, I can I, I cannot see that this is exactly the results of the work of these colleagues. But uh, the new generation, they are just totally different from me. Like okay. <laughs> no, and really, I understand that it's usually like this. But uh, in my case, I'm a, still a product of uh, a Soviet uh, school system. Mm. Uh, even if I was uh, ten years old when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, but still, this kind of past dependency is there, right? And uh, you still have the books which come from uh, the Soviet Union. But these people, this new generation who come, this uh, independent uh, uh, time mm. generation, they are different. This leads into the next question, actually. Um, from, from freed occupied territories in Ukraine, freed cities, uh, we get reports that uh, the Russians uh, handed out new textbooks to the teachers, all already describing the war in Ukraine. Um, is this a way to try to, to uh, uh, attempt to control history before it's written? 
Uh, yeah, you are right. This is an attempt to control history before it is written or before it's even uh, clear how it uh, all will end. Oh, it's happened. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But what is also interesting, when uh, um, th when uh, Russian occupy the territories, what is the first thing they do? They mm. put on these um, posters with, uh, yeah. with a very Russian kind of propaganda saying that uh, uh, these territories were historically theirs, like uh, Pushkin is on their like, uh, posters and uh, etc. They confiscate books from libraries, they uh, steal, they are looting uh, museums, mm. and uh, the first targets for their tortures are uh, teachers of history, teachers of Ukrainian language and literature, and the Ukrainian writers, Ukrainian intelligentsia, uh, Ukrainian composers, U Ukrainian musicians. Uh, for instance, just yesterday we had a huge uh, uh, burial in uh, Kharkiv because uh, uh, in Izum, when Izum was, um, and this is a small city, Izum, in uh, uh, east uh, south Ukraine, and uh, uh, when it was liberated, there were a lot of uh, collective uh, graves found, and in one of these graves, uh, there was this body of uh, um, famous Ukrainian children literature uh, writer, uh, Volodymyr Vakulenko, and um, now he was buried, and, and the only like crime he committed was just he was very outspoken <laughs> Ukrainian and uh, he wrote Ukrainian books for Ukrainian children. Hmm. I, I think it's very important to to underline because it's not always it's it's reported but not maybe not reported enough hmm. how much the cultural heritage is used in this war. And it's not only, I mean, w w when we talk about, uh, I think UNESCO has identified 200 plus uh, objects of cultural importance that have been destroyed. We know the number is larger, but this, these are verified um, uh, cultural sites. You could say, well, you know, the Russians do not have very precise missiles, blah, blah, blah. But. Uh, there is also a conscious looting. There, uh, over 40 uh, uh, museums have been looted, and it's documented. And uh, there's a looting of historical artifacts. There is a looting of the cultural heritage of these areas, and there are some very weird things going on, like when the Russian army left Kherson. And yes, Kherson is a kind of colonial city of the Russian Empire when it conquered the Turks on the Black Sea. Uh, under Catherine the Great, Kherson was created as a kind of outpost of the Russian Empire. And the creator of this uh, stronghold in the Russian Empire, allegedly Catherine the Great's lover, <coughs> Prince Patyomkin, was buried there in St. Catherine's Cathedral, which is, of course, named St. Catherine after Catherine the Great, this great German woman who conquered uh, uh, so many lands. And uh, uh, when they were leaving Kherson, they brought with them the body of Patyamkin. And how you to interpret this? It's very weird, actually, because it's in a way acknowledging that we're taking with us the previous generations of colonizers of this land, and we're kind of withdrawing into our heartland with them, uh, leaving this to whatever barbarians that are now in control of this area. Uh, or, uh, I don't know how they wanted to use this, maybe that, 
I don't know, the Ukrainian revolutionary, crazy fascist nationalist would, would I don't know, destroy the grave of Prince Potemkin uh, when they re-entered the town. So there's a lot of things that are, that are really remarkably strange going on, but showing that both sides are very aware of the symbolic importance of cultural heritage. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, this necropolitics uh, going on, and uh, uh, and also they are still in our archives. This is uh, for me as a historian. This is really a great problem because yes. uh, how we should uh, then write uh, the history. And what was interesting also in uh, in terms of this difference because Ukraine opened its archives and uh, after 90s, and uh, many um, uh, researchers even uh, in the West they were using Ukrainian um, archives because they all were open to write Soviet. History history, to write uh, Russian Empire history. Uh, so I just uh, really, when I see that these archives are uh, stolen, it's like not just, oh, uh, uh, because this is Russian stealing something from Ukraine, but from me from hi as historian, even not like a Ukrainian historian, I think that it, this is something what is very important for all us who are historians, because this is really like our, our work is disappearing. Mm. I'm very glad that you mentioned this because the the only access we have to the truth about the actual when we where where I started the orders how the killing in the 30s in the gulag how to interpret the intent to kill uh, the only documents that are available for us are the ones that are open in Ukraine or the ones that are open in the Baltic countries and with the with the removal, the stealing of archives, it's actually also a remover of our access into Soviet history. It's very important yeah, yeah, to stress yeah. this, that a lot of the truth about Gulag also and the repression of Stalin times is being taken with them into mm. this void of silence that is Russia right now. Uh, uh just going to change the subject a bit, uh, Julia. You, you have also looked at, at women's role uh, and inclusion in the more uh, recent view on history in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, as yeah. I see it, uh, this kind of decolonial move in history, yeah. it was uh, accompanied very much about the hi writing history of uh, the women. So mm -hmm. ver very um, strangely, because for me as a historian, it was strange to see, but uh, I was looking at the uh, books uh, published in Ukraine or uh, the research done by Ukrainian scholars in Ukraine about the Second World War, for instance. So the new research was really about the women in the war or the uh, um, sexual violence during the war. So it, for me, it's really like um, it shows that this new kind of um, reinterpretation. It's not only about like de-Sovietization. It's all really about like the taking seriously what is in the archives and to tell the stories of the people who never uh, got chance to 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 speak. Uh, so it, and uh, and it became this uh, women's history. And um, when you speak uh, look at the war now, uh, we have 60,000 women in the Ukrainian army now. It's a tremendous, uh, uh, enormous number in, in, if you compare to other armies in uh, Europe. And uh, when you see uh, the symbols, like all these memes going around in the internet about the war, about the resistance, about everything in Ukraine, it's very much feminine.
Hmm. And and not like in this, but uh, not always. I, I should say some are very patriarchal, this kind of um, uh, representations, but some are really very feministic, uh, very courageous, very, very, um, very interesting representations of uh, uh, womanhood and uh, femininity, which is just uh, reshaped during the war. Hmm. Uh, sorry, we uh, have to, to go through <laughs> a lot of questions here, but and another thing we n need to, to come back to is something you mentioned before, the organization Memorial. Yeah. Yes, so I just uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. tell me about, tell us about Memorial and what's happened to Memorial. <laughs> during Perestroika, it was suddenly, uh, or actually during Glasnost, which was the openness uh, of Gorbachev's politics, it was suddenly possible to speak about the atrocities um, of the Stalin era. Uh, the thing is, we now know, partly because of the archives in Kyiv and the archives in Vilnius, that this process was carefully managed by the KGB. In a way, you could also say that Perestroika was initiated by the KGB. The KGB was the part of the party system that actually understood that some reform is necessary, that the, the Soviet uh, system is collapsing. And uh, with Andropov and the, the last kind of KGB people in power in the Soviet Union, uh, they started introducing <laughs> these reforms. And they, there were kind of, the, we can now find KGB documents saying, let's start talking about the repression about the camp system and about the mass graves and the shootings of the 1937. But let's do it in a very controlled way where we commemorate the victims, but we never talk about the, the perpetrators. We never mention the perpetrators. So we create a kind of memory where, yes, this is kind of, and it's a very, in a way, I don't want to say it's a very Russian because, but it is, it is a, let's say, let's just put it this way. It's a narrative with long, that echoes back into Russian history of how atrocities and uh, killings have been commemorated. Where you kind of see this as, you know, a question of fate and disaster rather than of murder. Um, and uh, so, okay. Here we have a forest, here we have approximately 15,000 people buried. Let's not go into who they were. Some of them were also KGB, or at this time NKVD uh, officers. Some of them were also killers. Some of them were Ukrainian so-called nationalists. Some of them were you know, Tatar nationalists. Let's not go into who they were. Let's just decide that it's very unfortunate that they died, they're here, let's put a cross here, let's commemorate this. And, and that was the kind of narrative that was established. And uh, there was a need among people to kind of commemorate the personal losses and the, the places that they were living next to and maybe picking, picking mushrooms next to where you had these mass fields of dead people. And uh, Memorial channeled this. And in a way, Memorial were the, was the beginning of democracy and there was the chance 
to actually, through Memorial, point at the perpetrators, say who made the decisions, what went wrong in our society, why were these people killed. But this discussion just never happened. And today we can see that it was probably very controlled all the time. Nevertheless, Memorial started, there was this energy in Memorial about telling the truth. And it kind of created a template for each site. We have to remember that Memorial is a grassroots movement. It's everyone who lives next to a former camp, former burial site. They had a template on how to organize, what to collect, how to collect memories. Memorial was doing school programs, send the children, let them interview their grandparents. What do they remember? What do they know? All of this was collected in the 90s. So when I'm saying that it was controlled, at the same time it was an important mass movement and should be given credit. Then it was divided into the Memorial that deals with the past and the Memorial that was a human rights organization monitoring the the um, um, crimes against contem the contemporary crimes, including Chechnya. And uh, when Memorial was delegalized, it was kind of the road towards the full-scale invasion yes, of Ukraine. Was it 2001? Yeah. Was it uh, 21, sorry. In 2021, uh, both the Human Rights Department of Memorial and the part that was the central organization for all these grassroots <coughs> movements uh, remembering the past, the Soviet past, both these structures were delegalized by two different courts in a very short time period. The important thing to remember is that the local memorials still exist. They are very weak because it's just, you know, a few teachers in one town that used to collect these things and a few, one historian that is still, you know, it's. You, this is how it should be understood. And in someone's garage, there are boxes with uh, collected you know, stories and, and uh, artifacts that they found. This is how Memorial now works. So very cleverly, they kind of cut the head. They cut the superstructure that w had access to grant givers, programs that was creating the templates for everyone. And it just disappeared. And it was a clear preparation for war. Because Memorial is a grassroots organization, so it could be activated as a center for resistance. And because the head was cut off, these different cells in the different cities are now not organized. Um, I have two more questions. And they are receiving uh, together with, of course, with two, with the um, Center for Civil Liberties and uh, one of the founders of VS9 Belarus, uh, Center for Civil Liberties in Kyiv, and the f uh, they are receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, but you know this next week. Yes. Do you <coughs> want to say something about this? No. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I, my last question was, uh, I'm going to ask you about uh, the future, but I think we skipped that, and I want to ask you if you have any stories that, that you can share with us, with people from, from these um, places and, and, uh, how, and that have been affected by memory politics and memory, collective memory. Yeah, I, I, mean, I do. I mean, this is part of what I'm writing about in my book. Okay, my hero, one of the heroes of my book is called Anatoly Smilingis. He's a Lithuanian. He was deported from Vilnius when he was 14 uh, with his mother. 
His father was shot, but he didn't know this at the time. He was a so-called Lithuanian nationalist, that is the person that wanted an independent Lithuania and spoke Lithuanian. He ended up in the Komi Republic in a, in a camp that was cutting wood. And he was floating as a 14-year-old this, this uh, wood, this timber on the Vichigda River. He survived, and uh, because he was young, a young teenager, he survived. Um, most people did survive the Kulag, but uh, you know, about one tenth, one fifth in each deported group uh, never did. Uh, he married a Komi woman who's a Komi activist. She speaks Komi. Her own grandparents were deported from the Komi Republic to another part of the Soviet Union to work on the Belamorsky Canal. Uh, then she returned to Komi. They, he didn't have anywhere to go back in Lithuania. And in, already in the 80s, he started commemorating, even before Memorial was founded and, all, and before Pierestroika in the early 80s. He started commemorating and telling the story of the camps. When I met him, uh, he was showing me uh, a big piece of titanium that he had found uh, in the taiga. He was searching for uh, space, you know, things that are dropped by the space rockets when they are yeah. moving into space. And parts of these objects are made of titanium. So together with his uh, student uh, volunteers that were working with him, he was finding the titanium. He found a person in Siktifkar, the capital of that could engrave in titanium. And on each site, burial site, around the camp system where he worked, he leaves the titanium in the forest and he says, here, by our estimate, are four to 6,000 people buried. They are, as we know at the moment, of the nationalities XXXXXXX. The camp was working here from the year to the year. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And he shows me this and I say, why go through all this work? And he said, there will be a time very soon when all of this will be denied again. Mm -hmm. So let's just engrave it in titanium and leave it here in the forest. Mm. Yeah, uh, since, uh, since you mentioned the uh, Belamor Canal, I, uh, I thought, uh, yeah, my grandfather was uh, deported there to build the Belamor Canal. So I am uh, the product of history because one <laughs> part of family was the building Belmore Canal, one part of family, uh, if not the Second World War, they would never ever come to to live where they live now. Uh, they were, they would be still in uh, Poland, and they would never be deported as Ukrainians back, uh, or as uh, the uh, the powers thought back to Ukraine because they were speaking the language or not even the language they were speaking actually Polish but they were uh, of Orthodox um, belief and that was decisive so they had to move to uh, to Ukraine so it would be a completely different story maybe I would never be <laughs> born so uh, that is why I think that we all in a way are the product products of history but speaking about now I would just uh, recommend to uh, read the uh, Ukrainian um, testimonies of war yeah. and some are already 
um, published even in um, in uh, English. And um, for instance, Stanislav Asayev's books uh, on his um, detention in uh, Russian um, uh, prison in Donbass and about all these tortures he uh, went through, they they are already published. There are two books uh, published in English. So this, this is exactly what I would say. Thank you. I, uh, I'm doing this because I want to open up for questions for 10 minutes at least. So we're going to use this one, I think. <laughs> Do we have any questions or comments? There's one. Let's start there. So please... Uh, Present yourself with your name and... Thank you very much. My name is Elena Gurkivska. I'm a visiting scholar in Sudeton University. I'm also from Ukraine. Thank you, speakers, for this speech and for this knowledge. It's very important to talk about it. So, like, personally, thank you very much for this. And uh, my question about the um, future of memory politics in Ukraine. Like, um, Yulia, you have talked about such problems and mistakes that we have done in the 90s. Um, in Ukrainian politics to prevent Russian aggression against Ukraine. So, in my opinion, this mistake it was that we didn't imply the language tests for a citizenship. We uh, didn't uh, point uh, Soviet Union period in Ukrainian history as a Soviet occupation, uh, and for instance, like Estonia did it. And now we have such a problem. We have a united society, and. In the same time, we have a very dangerous discussion about the Russian culture in Ukraine, like uh, forbidding it of uh, Bulgakov or something th like that, that uh, people, some of people who now lives in Ukraine, uh, despite the war, despite the aggression, they don't believe that cultural aspect is prolongation of political aspect of the Russian concept, uh, the Moscow third Rome, like uh, the paradoxical is that it was framed by Ukrainian Teofan Prokopovich, this concept to Petrov first. And my question is about how we would deal with it. Like uh, we have a um, society part who lead the discussion about the resistance to forbiddenness of Russian culture, and what we will do with memory politics uh, to unite Ukrainian nation and to fight against the aggressor. So, thank you. Th there's a lot there. Will you start? Uh, yeah. It's all. Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Alona. And first of all, I wouldn't agree that we wouldn't have war if uh, the cultural politics would be different. I think that we wouldn't have war if uh, Russia would be different and if Ukraine is a part of NATO. Then it we wouldn't have war. But uh, it's not about, as I see it, it's not about culture. We don't have war because of the culture. But culture is used to uh, to disguise all this imperialistic uh, uh, strivings um, of Russia. But um, uh, on the second part, uh, I do agree with you that there are lots of discussions about uh, what to do with Russian culture, but actually I don't think that this is um, like our problem now, because um, uh, I I think that uh, the the main task is to win the war, and I don't think really that it will be uh, it will be some question about Russian culture in a way, because. Um, 
Right now, uh, what I see, what is needed in uh, Russian maybe studies uh, to re-evaluate uh, these classics. But uh, I don't think that uh, this is something what is so kind of um, uh, topical now that uh, this is uh, the work of uh, uh, the Ukrainian society to do what something like this. So I, I really don't see it as uh, the main problem. But uh, it 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 seems like um, this all discussions are created to distract us from uh, some uh, important things, and uh, and that is why yeah why should we why should we talk about it? I, I have one a colleague who and you heard him that he said like um, uh, maybe we have to put uh, the Russian culture in the quarantine or something like this but for me I, I, I just really don't uh, I, I don't see this as a problem really war, war affects uh, both sides uh, and uh, it affects both those who win or defend themselves and those who lose um, and uh, unfortunately I hope that I will live to see a lot of the discussions that are needed in Ukraine, but I think for a generation after winning this war, Ukraine will also be uh, dealing with the consequences of war, with the consequences of forcing an, a society to be united against an aggressor, a society that should be pluralistic and democratic and question itself and so on. It's very difficult to question yourself when you're under attack. Uh, and this will probably last for a long time. As we know, the Philharmonics in Tel Aviv never played Wagner. Uh, I think they did a few years ago, and it was a big event when they decided to play Wagner, but it took a few generations before the Philharmonic. In, and Wagner is, is not responsible for the crimes of Hitler, but Wagner was used by Hitler, and therefore impossible to play in Tel Aviv in the way that Pushkin is used by the Russian army as a symbol of imperial rule. You re-establish the statues of Pushkin. Uh, and this is where I'm saying that to the people who say, we, but Tchaikovsky is not responsible for the war in, uh, in Ukraine, why should we stop playing him? And I always say, well, you know, there is another tradition in the Soviet Union, and that's when you don't want to discuss something, you play Tchaikovsky. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Tchaikovsky is never neutral, because putting on Tchaikovsky means that you're deciding to not put on something else, or not discuss something else. Tchaikovsky is like, okay, let's put on Swan Lake, mm -hmm. and pretend that it's raining. So, Swan Lake is not neutral, and it has nothing to do with Tchaikovsky himself, or the ballet. It's just, there is a historical context to playing the Swan Lake. And I think it's completely possible to play the Swan Lake today, but you would have to think about it two times. You cannot just say, well, let's just play the Swan Lake as we always do. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of revisioning of Russian culture needed, but uh, as you said, it's not, it's not something that the Ukrainians should be doing right now. But the rest of the world and Russia, I totally agree, and I just one sentence because I think that uh, it's up to Ukrainians then to decide how they relate themselves to these monuments and whatever. So and uh, and this I really hope that it won't be done like somebody forcing them to be like, yeah, you should love Pushkin, but why should I? 
Right, we actually, we have, uh, I think, four minutes left. Maybe to do one more quick question, or do you want to say something about the future? Say something about the future. <laughs> Julia, <laughs> uh, can, can you say something about, well, I, I <coughs> like this. Um, can you say something about, what do you think about how we will remember what's happening right now in Ukraine? I think that uh, it will depend uh, how it all will end, right? Yep. And there, uh, whether there will be us who remember, right? Uh, sure, yep. uh, so if we are optimistic and we are still there and we remember, then it means that everything ended well. And uh, hmm. um, we can speak about um, freedom, we can speak about democracy, we can speak about the brighter world. Hmm. I, I see it like this. Yes. That's a good note to end on, isn't it? Yes. Right. <coughs> Stefan Ingvarsson, Stockholm Center for, uh, for Eastern European Studies. Uh, Julia Jurchuk, lecture at Södermans, uh, Södertörn, sorry, University. Uh, Södermal, <laughs> should, uh, uh, they only do Södertörn. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing all the knowledge. Yes. Um, okay, guys. Um, so now there's 15 minutes to drink more coffee, eat more Swedish fika, kanelbulle and all that. Uh, and the next roundtable discussion will start in 15 minutes. Uh, and the title is Post-Colonial Memories, Pressing Concerns for Peace Research. Very exciting. See you in 15.